Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome to our first episode of Devotions in the Deep End. We have a short time together, so we're going to get right into it today. And our Bible passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. We're going to read that together now. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now I wonder if you can picture the incredible image that Matthew was painting here. In the previous verses, we are introduced to John the Baptist, and we see him announcing to the world around him to prepare for the soon-to-be arrival of their Messiah. As part of his unique ministry, he was offering baptism to all who would come. The baptism John offered was for people seeking to set themselves apart for the Lord and clean up their act. It was a baptism of repentance, which was a known practice among various Jewish groups, and Paul calls it this in Acts chapter 19. People would judge themselves at the river and find themselves wanting. Then they would wash and emerge symbolically or ceremonially clean, with the aim of being ready for their Messiah. After a 400-year lull, we're seeing a sense of revival going on among the people of Israel, and John is baptizing many people who are renouncing their sin and asking the Lord to help them be fit for his kingdom. And out from the crowds of those being baptized, we read that Jesus emerges and steps into the water. This happens much to the surprise of John, who pretty much asks Jesus, what on earth do you need baptism for? Christians believe in a mysterious reality that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. But at the Jordan River that day, this wasn't known by others yet. They quickly got to know Jesus the man, but not his divinity. And he had carried the burden of his future ministry in silence for more than 30 years. But now that silence was about to be broken and it had to be done right. So when John quizzes him, Jesus insists on being numbered among those getting baptized because it was necessary in his words to fulfill all righteousness. This idea of fulfilling all righteousness meant a few key things. First, it meant that Jesus identified the sinfulness of humankind and yet he was willing to identify with that sinful humanity. He would allow his perfect self to enter the waters that symbolized burial and judgment and emerge symbolically clean, a foreshadowing of the things he would be doing for real at the cross. Jesus went through John's baptism of repentance, anticipating the cross. And the believer's baptism, according to Romans 6, is identified with the realization of the cross and what it accomplished. Next, it's worth noting that in carrying this God-placed burden in his human body for all that time, Jesus would certainly have grappled with his calling over the years. Now make no mistake here, Jesus was not a sinful man fighting disobedience like you and I do all the time. He was the one who the scriptures clearly say knew no sin. But his fully human self knew what was ahead for him, and it would certainly have played on his mind. 
So this baptism event put a very clear line in the sand. It's as if Jesus was saying, I'm set apart, and the road of redemption that leads to the cross starts now. And finally, it set a powerful path for us as believers in our own journey as disciples. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his followers to go and make other followers and baptize them as well. Jesus set a pretty clear example here. If he decided in his own life and ministry that this was required, then a disciple of Jesus accepts baptism as a requirement too. In fact, we see in the New Testament that this was the method of entrance into full Christian community. Now, once Jesus does this, we're told that something amazing happens from heaven. We read about the appearance of a dove resting on him, and we hear the affirming voice of the Father in heaven. This image of a dove has captured the imagination for many. It is clearly described as the Spirit of the Lord in this passage, and all the Gospel writers agree with this. But why does he appear in a dove formation? One great idea came from a wonderful theologian, the late John Stott, who suggested it might be a good way to represent the nature of Jesus' ministry. In doing this, he points us to an Old Testament identity, someone who was also called to preach a message of repentance, someone who Jesus specifically referred to in regards to his own ministry, someone whose name actually meant dove. This person was the prophet Jonah. Both he and Jesus had messages of repentance to populations headed for destruction, and both would be agents of salvation after three-day ordeals in darkness. Now, did John Stott answer our dove question? Well, it certainly gives us some wonderful food for thought and a wonderful image to consider. In any case, we see a dove. And then we hear an audible voice which states, This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And with this statement, we see that upon Jesus' arrival and baptism, the extended silence of heaven has finally come to an end. Some rabbis of the time held the belief that the Spirit of God had in fact left Israel, and the Lord had ceased to speak except for the most minor of things. But to Israel immediately, and eventually the entire world, heaven was now open for business again, and Jesus was going to be heaven's first-hand spokesman. And of course, the content of this first heavenly statement is a huge endorsement of Christ. And we see a fusion of two Old Testament scriptures being used in this statement. The first is a known Messianic verse in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Here's what it says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Israel lived in hope of a Messiah, and through verses such as this one, they were looking for God to provide a messianic son who would be a true ruler worthy of the throne of David. Jesus arrived, at least in human terms, as a descendant of David. And he was indeed a king too. But there is also something else here which helps us understand the work of Christ. We see the other scripture, and this is taken from a more surprising source for the Jews. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4. This is what it says. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. 
We read of the servant in whom God delighted or was pleased. The servant the Lord promised who would restore true justice in the eyes of God, but not by crying in the streets and making a scene. The one who will serve and suffer without lifting his voice. It's that suffering servant upon whom God would place his spirit. From the very outset, we are introduced to Jesus in a really powerful way here. We first see a picture of the ministry that Jesus would be doing. And we see an endorsement from heaven that makes things clear about who he was. As an introduction to this devotional series, this is as perfect as it gets. Jesus came to earth, and as he begins his ministry, he identifies with fallen humanity. He is baptized among many others who are confessing their sins, even though he had nothing to be accountable for. He enters the waters of repentance, judgment, and ceremonial washing, even though he was never dirty and certainly never guilty. And at the cross, he would face these things again for those he came to seek and save. All of this was so that we would identify with him. Friend, the deeper waters of our faith involves identification. It means being openly associated with Jesus because he openly associated with us, even in our sinfulness, so that we could know his righteousness. It means identifying fully with who he is. He was indeed a king, as the Lord had promised many times over, and he brings a wonderful kingdom with him. But he was a suffering servant too. We're called to identify with both aspects of Jesus here. And that sort of deep identification will create a natural byproduct, imitation. Imitation has an obvious practical outlet here in the form of baptism. Perhaps the Spirit is nudging you about that as you're listening right now. I would encourage you to speak with a minister about that the first chance you get. And imitation also has an outlet as we consider Jesus' person and work. We read here that heaven spoke up for the first time in centuries and foreshadowed what Jesus would be doing while he was in our neighborhood. There would be good times. There would be joy because the Messiah was now come. He was a king and a deliverer as the Lord had promised many times over. So if he is king, then our imitation of him needs to be in keeping with the values of his kingdom. But for disciples, there would be not so good times too. There would be suffering because Jesus was headed down a path that led to this outcome. There would be unsettled times as they traveled. There would be uncertain situations to deal with. And there would be a cross at the end of this whirlwind tour. And even beyond that, there would be trouble for simply being his followers. So since he is clearly identified as a suffering servant, we also imitate him by leaning into suffering, while at the same time excelling in service to others. We identify with Jesus in both the crown and the cross. And we imitate him on that same basis also. The Christian life is one that identifies with the complete picture of Jesus Christ and lives in imitation of him. It's a life that's clearly not always easy, but we know it will always be blessed. It's a life where the full rewards of identification will not be seen this side of eternity. But as we live with that sort of perspective, we see this as short-term pain for long-term gain. I wonder if that's the sort of Christian life you signed up for. I hope you have, because the journey is definitely worth it. Now we're going to continue this journey next time by exploring Jesus' very next steps. But for now, let's sign off with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your life of obedience that was evident even at the Jordan River that day. 
You identified with us so that we might identify with you and imitate you. Help us to do that, to identify with you as both king and suffering servant, with our unashamed imitation of you being the outcome. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.